Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord and our God, we are so grateful this morning to be able to come uh, together in, in your name and to hear your word and lord we ask for your direction your help your your anointing this morning for i can do nothing or say nothing that would make a difference except apart from you because i don't have the power lord but you do and lord i thank you for it i thank you for your word i thank you that we can put this word in our heart and we can live by it lord help us give full attention lord to what you have for us this morning in jesus name amen and you may be seated As always, I'm going to open our study in the book of Ephesians with a quote uh, from John McKay, who was at one time the president of Princeton Theological Seminary. And he said that this letter is pure music. What we have is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. And John Stott begins his uh, study on this section of Ephesians by saying one of the best ways to discover a Christian's chief concerns and ambitions is to study the content of their prayers and the intensity with which they pray them. We all pray about what concerns us, what is on our hearts and minds the most. And we tend not to pray about things that we're not too awfully concerned about. And the intensity with which we pray these things also tells what we are concerned about. I could remember, I think it was back in the really late 1960s, maybe early 1970s, uh, the young son of a pastor at a church here in Princeton accidentally hung himself. A uh, few days later, I was talking to the guy who drove the ambulance who went went to pick him up. And he said that he had heard many people pray before, but he never really heard anybody pray until that night on on the way to the hospital. He said that father really, really prayed with an intensity that he had never heard before. The more we are concerned about something, the more we will pray about it, and the more intently we will pray about it and what we have in these eight verses is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church and indeed a prayer for the church at large the church everywhere at all times even Calvary Chapel Princeton on this very day and within this prayer we can sense the supreme awe 
that Paul has for what God has done in establishing his church. We can sense the love that Paul has for God's church and the love that God has for Paul himself. I think we can practically feel the intensity with Paul's prayer. We can feel the, the love behind it, the emotion behind it. Have you ever been encouraged or helped or inspired or just drawn closer to God by hearing someone else pray? I know I have plenty of times. When we lived in South Carolina, there was a young fellow who attended our church on Wednesday nights. He was a student at, at Holmes Bible College, and he couldn't come any other time. Well, he couldn't come on Sundays because he had to attend the, the uh, campus church. But he came on Wednesday nights, and I asked him to pray one time. And after that, I asked him to pray every time he was there because it just I could just feel the presence of the Lord in his prayer and could tell that he, was, he, was, he wasn't talking to the congregation. He was talking to God. And, you know, there's a lot of you guys. Now, I haven't heard everybody in here pray, but I've heard a lot of you pray. And I don't think there's any of you that I haven't heard that, that I don't get a blessing from when I hear you pray. And also, I think we can take note of the fact here that Paul says that he bows his knees in prayer. Now, the normal posture among the Jews of this time was to pray standing. In fact, uh, you know, the parable of the publican and the uh, Pharisee who were praying, you know, they were both standing praying. And Jesus, in, in addressing his disciples about prayer, says, and whenever you stand praying, you know, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. However, you know, he's not saying that is the only posture that you uh, should have in, in praying. You know, it's not without precedent that the Old Testament and New Testament showed people praying on their knees. Solomon prayed on his knees. Ezra prayed on his knees. The psalmist in, in Psalm 95 calls us to, to kneel in prayer. Daniel prayed on his knees. People came to Jesus and you know, to petition him on their knees. Stephen prayed on his knees. Peter prayed on his knees. Paul prayed on his knees. Other early Christians prayed on their knees. And most importantly, you know, Jesus prays on his knees. And Hezekiah, if you'll remember, prayed from his sickbed with his face turned toward the wall. You know, <clears throat> it's not whether you pray on your knees or you pray standing or however you pray. Our bodily posture isn't what's important. What is important is the posture of our heart. Sometimes we cannot bow our knees in prayer, but we can always bow our hearts before him. Verse 14, For this reason I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now this chapter, this, this section begins with, for this reason. Actually, this chapter began up in verse 1 with, for this reason. You know, it appears here that Paul has uh, just interrupted himself. Now that's not really unusual, because remember Paul didn't write his own letters. 
he was telling someone else what to write for him. And you know, and when when you're when you're talking, it's easy to kind of maybe to get ahead of yourself a little bit. And I think here Paul was about to enter into this prayer when he remembered, or the Holy Spirit brought to his remembrance, things that he still yet needed to say concerning the the mystery of the church and how God has made from Jew and Gentile one person you know, for his for his family and. So, so evidently he, he discovered that he still had more to say. And now he is uh, addressing his prayer to the Father. And I've heard it debated so many times, you know, are we supposed to pray to the Father? Are we to, how, how, who, to whom are we supposed to pray? Well, it seems to me like even asking this question indicates a lack of understanding of the Trinity. When we pray, we pray to God. God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. We can't pray to one without praying to all. It's not like, you know, well, if I, if I pray to Jesus, you know, I'm not going to be heard. Or if I, if I pray to the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to be heard. Or whatever, you know. When we pray, we pray to God. And God is one. God is not three. We can't pray to one without praying to all. Now, we are told to pray in Jesus' name. But now praying in Jesus' name is not a magic formula to get your your prayer heard. What it means, what we mean by that is... We don't come and re- and make our petition known in our own worth, by our own merit. We ask in the merit that Jesus has gained for us. And we say so in our prayer. That's what we mean when we say in Jesus' name. But Paul is addressing this prayer to the Father, and I think one reason... Uh, he is emphasizing the fact that he is the one and only father of his people who are both Jew and Gentile. And it is from him that he has formed one family and we all bear his family name. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. First and foremost, Paul is letting his readers know that he is praying to a God who is able to grant his petitions. And there are four main petitions in this prayer. The key words are strength, love, knowledge, and fullness. And more specifically, they are first, that they may be strengthened by the indwelling of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Secondly, that they may be rooted and grounded in love. And thirdly, that they may know Christ's love in all its dimensions. And finally, that they may be filled right up with the very fullness of God. Let's examine these 
four petitions a little more closely. The prayer opens with, To be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, clearly, these two petitions, that the Spirit and Christ will dwell within us, are one petition. That the Spirit would dwell in our inner man and Christ would dwell in our hearts. Both of these speak about God dwelling within us, living in our inner man, in our inner being. And you may say, well, doesn't every believer already have Christ in his heart? Yes, of course. If we didn't, we wouldn't be his. But Christ lives in us through the Holy Spirit. We can't have one without the other. But as Charles Hodge put it, it is a thing of degrees. It's a matter of degrees. We can be filled with the fullness, but yet, you know, we are not yet full. So not yet being full means that, you know, there is room for more. So it it becomes a matter of degrees. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have to pray later on that we, we would be filled with the fullness of God. You know, Paul never splits the Trinity. We can't have the Spirit dwelling within us without Jesus too, and vice versa. And Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So if we have Jesus living in our heart and the Holy Spirit in our heart, you know, we have the fullness of God within our heart. What Paul is asking for is that they be fortified, braced, invigorated by the indwelling and that they may know the strength of the Spirit's inner reinforcement. You know, there are two similar Greek words commonly used for, for dwelling and Paul uses both of them in chapter 2 and chapter 3. One of them means a a temporary dwelling it could also be translated sojourner or even foreigner but this word when he says dwell within us means a a permanent resident it means that he's here to stay paul's second petition is that you would be rooted rooted and grounded in love you know love is the foundation of our faith it was love that was the motivation behind our salvation. And of course, nowhere is it more distinctly and beautifully stated than what Jesus said in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why did God give his Son? Because he loved us. And that was when... We were still sinners and still quite unlovable. As Paul said in Romans 5 and 8, but God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The two greatest commandments that that Jesus uh, enumerated for us were that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
were first to love God, for it is in him that we live and move and have our being, as God told the hearers at the Areopagus in, in Athens. <clears throat> but how do we express our love for God? Well, first, we spend time with him in prayer and in his word. If you love somebody, you're going to want to spend time with them, aren't you? You're going to want to talk to them. You're also going to want to listen to them You want to, because you will be concerned about what they have to say. And the same is true for our love for God. And that's what God wants from us, for us to spend time with him, for us to talk to him, for us to tell him our concerns, and for us to listen to him through his word. But there's a second commandment. And it's not an optional commandment. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, how do we love our neighbor? Well, if we show our love for God in a certain way. Well, you're smart people. You figure this out. Yeah, I don't have to tell you. <laughs> First John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You know, God has created a new humanity, which is his church. And we are to love him and to love one another. But you know, loving one another isn't always easy. We need the power of the Spirit to do that. <clears throat> when I was in college, and this is before I met Gloria, I got a Valentine card in time that said on the front of it, How do I love thee? You know, from Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem. How do I love thee? And on the inside it said, It isn't easy. Yeah, it's not always easy <laughs> to love our brothers and sisters. Some of us are more lovable than others. Some of us are easier to love than others. But now I wrote down here, and I think I'll go ahead and say it anyway, you know, you can love all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you can't. it's really hard <laughs> to love all the people all the time. But we are told to love all the people all the time, even our enemies, even those who mistreat us. Because Jesus said if, if we only love those who love us, what difference are we, what different are we than the rest of the world? We are to be a different people in the love that the Spirit empowers us to have, enables us to love those who are really hard to love. Here Paul uses two metaphors to express how he desires the love for God and the love for one another to be. One is that we would be rooted, that is an agricultural term, you know, that we would have roots that would be deep and would nourish us and sustain us. The other is that we would be grounded. In other words, that we would have a firm foundation, a solid foundation, a foundation built upon a solid rock. Now, the second petition had to do with our ability to love God and one, uh, love one another. The third petition is that we may know the love of Christ. 
and the love Christ had for us. Verse 18 says that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Paul prays that we may have the power to comprehend the love of Christ in its full dimensions, its breadth, length, height, and depth. Now you might say, wait a minute. That's four. We only have three dimensions. Well, maybe Paul is exercising a little hyperbole here, or maybe not. Just because we only have three dimensions doesn't mean that Christ can't have four. He can have as many dimensions as he wants. He's not limited by our dimension. But as John Stott put it, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind. It's long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most deranged sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. Ancient commentators had another way of looking at it. They saw these dimensions as illustrating the cross, for its upright pole reached down to us on the earth, and it pointed to heaven, to God while its crossbars carried the arms of Jesus, stretched out as if to invite all sinners to come to him. And another commentator said, in finding a parallel in, in Romans 8, 37, uh, 39, whether you go up, forward, backward, to the height or to the depth, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. James Montgomery Boyce tells of a time when Napoleon's army opened a prison that had been used by the Spanish Inquisition. There they found the remains of a prisoner who had been incarcerated for his faith. The dungeon was underground, the body long since decayed, only a chain around his ankle told of his confinement. But this prisoner long since dead, had left a witness. On the wall of his small, dismal cell, this faithful soldier of Christ had scratched a rough cross with four words around it. Above the cross he had written height. Below the cross was depth. To the left, the word width, and to the right, length. Clearly, this prisoner wanted to testify the surpassing greatness of the love of Christ, which he perceived even in his suffering. You know, when I think of the love of God, it's almost overwhelming. In our sin, he loved us. We turned our back on him, and he loved us. There's a line from one of my favorite poems, and of course it's certainly not uh, inspired writing, but it says, For for my omniscience paid I toll, an infinite remorse of soul. And it always makes me think of how our sin must hurt God, how his heart must hurt, an infinite remorse for us in our sin. But his love for us is greater still, that he loved us enough to send his son to the cross to die. <clears throat> 
the hymn writer said, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hill. Can we comprehend the love of God? Has Paul asked us to understand something that is not understandable? We can't know the depth of it, but we can search for it. We can experience it. We can know that it is real. And we can grow in that experience as God's love sees us through trials and sufferings of this life. You know, consider the Spanish prisoner I just told you about. The love of God was real to him, even in that dismal, dark dungeon. God's love was just as real to him there as it would have been if he had been standing on the mountain peak of glory. His fourth petition is that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Fullness is a characteristic word in the book of Ephesians as it is in Colossians. In Colossians, Paul tells us not only tells us not only that God's fullness dwells in Christ, but also that in Christ we ourselves have come to this fullness. At the same time, he makes it clear that we still have room for growth. As individuals, we are to go on being filled with the Spirit. And the church, although already the fullness of Christ, is still growing up to him until it reaches his fullness. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The first thing that Paul talks about God in his prayer is that he is able. He is able to do. He is able to act. He is able to make things happen. As I said at the beginning, uh, uh, Paul at the beginning of his prayer inserted that he was praying to a God who had the power to answer prayer according to his riches and glory. God's ability to answer prayer is forcefully stated by Paul in a composite expressed in seven stages. He is able to do or to work for he is neither idle, inactive, or dead. Secondly, he is able to do what we ask for he hears and answers prayer. Third, he is able to do what we ask or think, for he knows our thoughts, and sometimes we imagine things for which we dare not ask. Fourthly, he is able to do all that we ask or think, for he knows it all and can perform it all. Fifth, he is able to do more or beyond all that we ask or think, for his expectations are higher than ours. Sixth, he is able to do much more or more abundantly than all that we ask or think, for he does not give his grace in limited measure. And finally, 
he is able to do very much more, far more abundant than we all ask or think, for he is a God of superabundance. In fact, he is a God of unlimited supply. He has his riches in glory. Or, as simply stated, there is no limit to what God can do. Of course, there is a limit to what he will do. He will not grant a prayer outside of his will. And that is something that we should be eternally grateful for because we don't know what kind of mess we could get ourselves into if God would grant some of our prayers. He always answers, but if it's not in his will, his answer will be no. <clears throat> but there's many things that people worship and unfortunately, there's many gods in this world that people pray to. Paul says in, uh, in to the Corinthians, he said, though there there are that that are called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as there are be gods many and lords many, but there is to us but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And we have, and we in Him, of all the gods in our in this world, ours only is the God who can do something. He can not only do something, but He can do far more than we can even imagine. You know, and sometimes our imaginations can get pretty wild. God's prayer relates to the fulfillment of His vision for God's church. A fellowship full of love for God, full of love for one another. He asked that its members be strengthened so as to love and to know the love of Christ, even though his love surpasses knowledge. But then he goes from the love of God past to knowing the power of God now. The uh, power that is also past imagining. Eight limitless love and a limitless power the power and this power he says is working in us it is the power that made us into his people and it is continually making us more like him i heard one <clears throat> commentator a uh, old old commentator say one time that we are continually becoming more like god when we get to heaven we will continually be becoming more like God. We will have all eternity to do it, but we will never get there. That's just something to think about. <clears throat> and Paul closes his prayer with the only fitting way it can be closed, with an amazing doxology. In fact, James Montgomery Boyce calls it the greatest doxology in the Bible, and I must agree. To him... Be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory. The power comes from him, so the glory must go to him. One of my favorite writers said it well. You know, in the body, that is the church, and in the head, that is Jesus, in the bride and in the bridegroom, in the community of peace and love, and in the peacemaker, all this glory 
in Christ and in his church is for all generations forever and ever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your church. And thank you for including us in it, for making us your people, the sheep of your pasture. We know, Lord, that you are in us and we in you. But if there's anyone, Lord, who is hearing my words and who does not know you in the full pardon of sin, Lord, I pray that this love that motivated our salvation to, to begin with would reach them and draw them to you that they too can know you in the fullness and forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, it is now time to